All right, welcome. So hopefully by now you've watched the other capsule for this week, which you should watch first. There's two um, articles that we're reading for this week. One of them is by me, um, and there's a corresponding capsule in, in the same playlist as usual that's entitled Scientology's Legal System, like the paper um, that I've asked you to read. So you should watch that one first, right? And that's gonna give you both kind of an overview of what's discussed in my paper, and also what the broader implications of it are. Then there's a second article we're reading for this week, which is specifically about how new religious movements, including Scientology, have sought to use intellectual property to do various things, right? And that's where you see how it's both, you know, a second example of what I discuss in my paper, but also a way for Scientology right, in other organizations to do things that, that essentially they've, they've tried to do for a long time, the main one of which is to try to build this wall, right, this area of independence around them that the law affords them such that they're able to use the rules that they want. They're able to have their own systems of rules of enforcement that are, that are separate from the mainstream legal system that often compete with and are inconsistent with the mainstream legal system, right? But their legitimacy is given to them by the mainstream legal system. So what does it mean for Scientology and other religions to use intellectual property constructs, right? So we saw over the, over the course of the semester, the more doctrinal areas, right? Everything we've seen so far has been about specific areas of intellectual property law and the rules that apply to them. Basically, we've gone through the entire textbook. We looked at copyright, industrial design, we looked at trademarks, both registered and unregistered, and finally, we looked at patents, right? So now we wanna take a step back. We wanna ask, right, how does intellectual property exist more broadly, right? How does intellectual property serve both as a tool and as a hint of what it is that we believe as a society, what it is that we're trying to achieve as a society and how it fits within a broader puzzle, right? I've been very annoying over the course of the semester repeating to you the underlying policy issues in intellectual property law, right? I think I spent about a half or a third of a lecture going over the Harvard Mouse Distant, which you looked at, um, which you looked at in great detail. I think it was 10 or 20 pages in the book and basically we looked at basically a, a, an overview of the various policy issues that define intellectual property law, right? The court tried to say, should we protect or not a life form? And in doing that, the court looked at the various policy issues that usually define intellectual property law and came to its own conclusion. When you read the dissent, right, you saw both what these specific policy issues are, but you also saw right, this rhetorical exercise. You saw the invocation of those policy arguments to ground a specific legal conclusion. In that case, for the dissent, it was that higher life forms, quote unquote, right, could be protected under the intellectual property regime. Doesn't mean they're always protected, but certainly the, the dissent didn't agree with that exclusion that was being either created or interpreted, regardless of you know, whose interpretation you pick by the majority. This week we see new religious organizations 
right? And specifically Scientology. That's something that I know about. And how they've used intellectual property to do things that they want to do. You'll recall one of the significant arguments in my paper was that Scientology's legal system is freestanding and independent, right? I said it's basically a complete legal system, right, that rules the entirety of a member's life. And I said, even though Scientology does resort to the mainstream legal system from time to time, for instance, by suing people, right, or by you know, defending or bringing religious discrimination or religious freedom lawsuits, right, I said this is misleading because it doesn't mean that Scientology's legal system is not, you know, comprehensive, doesn't cover everything. In fact, it's not true, or at least I don't think that's true. In fact, I think Scientology's legal system is, is freestanding and independent and has the potential to be freestanding and independent, at least, right? Obviously, in, in most developed countries, there's various limits to what religions can and cannot do. But if Scientology were to exist in its own country, right, most likely its legal system wouldn't have many gaps in it. But I said there are other reasons why Scientology uses it as a mainstream legal system that suggest other things, right? One of them is, we looked at it in a paper, intimidating enemies. And in that sense, the mainstream legal system is not being used, right, as a, to fill in the gaps that's in Scientology's legal system. It, it is simply used as a tool, like any other tool, right? As a tool to attack enemies, as a tool to do a thing that it wants to do. That's basically the only meaning it has in that context. One intellectual property, of course, is another tool. It's a tool that new religious movements can use to do things, right? And it introduces us to this very complex inter interaction between religious and secular legal systems, which I've discussed in my paper, which I've discussed in my other research, right? Because it's very complex, right? It's really hard to understand how it is, right? We have this interplay of independence but also, you know, tacit recognition of legitimacy on the part of religious legal systems, right? And how that, you know, ends up basically telling us what people are going to do. That's why it's interesting, right? It's interesting because what we're studying is not just, you know, what the rules are or how the rules are being applied. Ultimately, what we're studying is what drives human behavior. That's what the law ultimately is, right? It's the rules that people use or resort to to guide their behavior and that also change our collective behavior as a society. Intellectual property has been a tool for Scientology to do, you know, things that it wanted to do, right? So you'll recall perhaps from the paper, I'm not sure if it's enunciated, so I'll just repeat it here, right? Basically, Scientology is this very weird story where some you know, intergalactic emperor had an overpopulation problem, right? And then he basically you know, made people come into government offices under the auspices of a tax audit, and then he put them to sleep. Then he put them on DC-8 planes, which are you know, 1970s era planes, um, or even earlier in the 1970s planes that could go through space for some reason, right? And then he dropped all these bodies into volcanoes on Earth, which wasn't called Earth at the time, and then he blew them up with nuclear bombs. Very bizarre story, right? 
But ultimately what's important is that that basically led to the souls, quote unquote, I'm simplifying things here, right? The souls of these beings, right, being um, you know, the source of some upset for human beings, to simplify things. That's, that's a story that's pretty important because it explains, right, why various ills, mental or otherwise, right, plague the human race. But it's also a pretty bizarre story, right? You'd agree with me that most people probably would think that story is not compelling or believable. And so Scientology is this very complex system where you don't know everything when you come in, right? You have to go through the courses in order, right? You know, more, you, you get into more and more of confidential material where they have to trust you to reveal it to you, right? And also, these courses are more and more expensive. So there's fewer and fewer people for all these reasons that, you know, go up and up and up. And eventually, right, at some level, you reveal the story. In that context, of course, intellectual property is a very convenient tool. First of all, right, why is it that most religions haven't used intellectual property? Well, you'll recall that protection generally is limited for most types of intellectual property, except for trademarks, basically, right? It's convenient for a trademark, but doesn't protect that weird story. And so most religions have been around for more than, say, 50 or 100 years, and therefore, right, the, the protection on that would have expired long ago, right? The Bible was copyrightable material when it was written, right? But then, of course, the protection period expired, right? Either it stayed in the public domain, or if it hadn't stayed in the public domain, it would have returned in the public domain because the protection period would have expired. And so, right, you can start your own Bible company, print the Bible, and then you just charge people for you know, the paper in there. You don't pay for the actual content that you're printing. And therefore, intellectual property hasn't been a tool for most religions because the protection period would have lapsed. They could not use intellectual property as, as a tool, you know, to do whatever it is that they wanted to do. Interestingly, it's different for new religious movements because they're new, right? Because the protection period has not necessarily expired. So what we see is Scientology using that tool, using intellectual property to do things that might not have much to do with intellectual property. One of the things that's discussed in the article you read by Efros, right, is that the court basically declined protection under various, you know, types of intellectual properties of Scientology because it said, it, you know, the court said it doesn't challenge your commercial monopoly, right? You'll recall I've said that word, these words over and over again over the semester. Everything's about protecting the commercial monopoly of the intellectual property holder, right? Well, of course, Scientology, in, in those cases, it wasn't really about someone, you know, taking the books or the material and then selling it in their stead and making the money in their stead, right? In fact, there were other concerns generally, you know, keeping confidentiality and various other things that we're going to look at. And therefore, sometimes the court said, this is not really you know, what intellectual property law is for, and so we'll put a limit. But you saw from the reading that that limit isn't always there. Sometimes Scientology is indeed able to use intellectual property law to protect its stuff, to protect its story. And in that way, we see intellectual property law being used 
do things that it probably wasn't meant to do, right? We see it used as a legal tool to achieve things. For instance, for Scientology to keep its material confidential. Generally, that's not true, right, of say copyright. Generally, when you write a book, you wanna sell as much of it as you can because it's how you make money. There's not much of an incentive to keep it for yourself. And in fact, as we saw, the very policy justification for giving you copyright protection is because we don't want you to keep it to yourself. We want you to share it with people. And the way we incentivize that or reward that is with money, is with a monopoly. More interestingly, right, for discussion, right, this is very brief capsule that, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss these things in more detail during um, the, the, the actual discussion session for this week. But I want you to think about what the consequences of that are. First, when you create a tool like intellectual property, it can be used. You can't really have a, a provision, or it would be very likely to have a provision that says, well, you know, this regime can only be used by people or organizations that are non-religious. There's been consequences to Scientology using intellectual property to protect the confidentiality of its material. One of them that I find particularly interesting is in finding out what it is that people believe. And that's twofold. First of all, often it's important to, to know what people believe because they're trying to apply these rules in a court system. I discussed in the other capsule the Garcia case, right? Basically a case where a dispute between a former member and the Church of Scientology was remanded to arbitration. The judge said, there's an arbitration agreement, you go into arbitration. And therefore, right, the dispute was basically subtracted from the mainstream legal system and sent to religious arbitration. The arbitration procedure was as set out by Scientology with presided by three Scientologists in good standing. Well, it's kind of a problem, of course, when Scientology goes to court and says, we believe that, right? Scientology might say, well, we have a rule that says X. In that case, for instance, we have a rule that says we don't refund people. And then the court would have said, right, assuming the various other things that make your religious legal system applicable in this specific instance, the court would have said, well, you know, if that's an actual rule, then, you know, you can apply it internally, and we won't get into that, because there's this other thing in the United States Constitution, right, not too dissimilar in Canada, that says, that's called the Establishment Clause, it says that government shouldn't be you know, furthering a specific religion. The government shouldn't be funding a specific religion because, you know, we want people to have whatever religion they want. And therefore, right, for the court to say you cannot apply your religious rule, assuming, you know, again, the other conditions apply, that would be basically, you know, furthering or inhibiting religion. Of course, when that is protected by intellectual property, it's hard because then Scientology can go to court and say, well, we believe this. And then the judge or the opposing party is going to say, well, how come, right? Where's the proof of that? Scientology is going to say, well, you know, it's in our confidential scripture, which we don't want to file into evidence. And that's had very deep consequences. At least I feel that way as someone who's looked into this for a while. It's had deep consequences on, you know, courts making decisions that are very impactful upon people's lives based on incomplete or you know, somewhat unverifiable information. And it's had another impact on research because of course, 
Scientology can also choose to you know, divulge its confidential scripture to scholars that it likes, not to scholars that it doesn't like. And therefore that inhibits research, which is important for a lot of reasons, one of which is actually knowing what people believe, right? But there's various other reasons why people write, you know, research. And therefore, right, it's allowed Scientology to some extent to block only some people, to block only some researchers that it doesn't like, to favor researchers that it does like. And as a result, right, that might very well mean that the apparent scholarly consensus, the apparent consensus among people doing that research is that Scientology is great because they're the only people who have the means to conduct that research. There's two other more, um, you know, broader kind of aspects to this. In terms of what it is that we that people can believe. First, of course, as I said, right, you don't really know what the religion's about, right? Say Christianity might have some arguably bizarre, you know, teachings, right? Stuff that wouldn't seem particularly you know, believable or compelling. But one aspect of that is that you actually know, right? They, they don't hide a part of the Bible from you. That's not true for Scientology. And therefore, people don't know when they sign up what it is that they'll end up believing. More broadly, though, this intellectual property, you know, protection limits what it is that people that Scientology doesn't like can do with the teachings. First and significantly, it prevents people outside of Scientology from practicing it. And I think it's very significant, right? If we think that people should have freedom of religion, right, how is it that Scientology can say, this is our stuff, it's protected, we don't want you to use it, we won't sell it to you, we won't give it to you, and if you get it some other way, we'll sue you and take it away from you. That has very deep implications because, right, People can't practice outside the religion. And therefore, you can only have Scientology within Scientology. And every major religion has evolved such that people have practiced it outside of organized churches. And it's evolved that way as well. And that intellectual property protection, at least at a broad level, of course, there's exceptions and all that, right? In terms of uses of intellectual property. But at a broad level, what it does is that it prevents people from practicing the religion outside the church, right? And more importantly, what that does, of course, is it makes it really bad for you to get excommunicated. Because, you know, I told you in the previous capsule all these things about Scientology that make it, you know, that such that people respect the religious rules, right? People respect the rules that are not in the mainstream legal system. And one of them is that Scientology, if they kick you out, right, you lose your family in addition to using your, losing your eternity. And here it's even more salient because you cannot practice Scientology outside the church. And therefore the consequence is even more dire. And as a result, you're, the, the member is even more likely to subject himself, to voluntarily respect, right, the religious legal system where its only, you know, pull, its only coercive right, inducement is the fact that you get excommunicated. And more broadly, it might very well prevent the religion from evolving. 
because when the text is protected as is under copyright law, it doesn't change, right? And for a variety of reasons, which we could discuss in more detail during in our actual discussion sessions, right? It's important for religions to evolve. That's how they don't die, right? To have teachings that are stuck even 50 years ago makes it very hard to have, you know, a vibrant legal system and a vibrant set of teachings and beliefs that remains relevant in contemporary society.